Welcome to Fruiting Body Podcast with your host, Brendan. Today, we have another legend of a guest. It is Paul Banaszek, the Reaper, the Muay Thai technician, uh, the Polish power. I don't know. I just made that up there, but possibly. Um, Paul is going to be talking to us today mostly about the roadmap of a Muay Thai fighter's career. Um, personally, this is a question from my side. So everyone out there that's listening to this, if you're training Muay Thai for the first time in your small town, wherever, it could be Europe, Canada, USA, India, um, we're going to explain to you the different promotions in Muay Thai and what you could do to kind of, um, you know, go through that career ladder and what are the ceilings, um, what are some of the obstacles you might face and what can take you to the next level. Uh, now, Paul has his own uh, YouTube channel uh, and also, more importantly, his Instagram channel, The Muay Thai Technician. It's more focusing on coaching and technique. Um, so we're going to jump right into that right away. And as always, we'll explain Paul's life story of what brought him from Poland to the U.S. to Thailand and his upcoming fight for the North American w WBC title on December 16th um, in New York, Queens. I forget the name of the Melrose... Melrose Ballroom. Melrose Ballroom. Um, so we'll be talking about that as well. Uh, don't forget, like, subscribe, smash the bell. That helps us out in the algorithm. And uh, share with friends and family. Apparently, that's the best you can do. I think we're almost at 3,000 subscribers. Let's jack it up to five. So come on, smash that sub and let's go. Uh, don't forget, we are a medicinal mushroom company that is why we're called fruiting body on the island of phuket thailand products coming out soon tons of video game uh, uh tons of giveaways uh lion's mane reishi all this great stuff for the immune system and brain health uh without further ado let's get this podcast started with paul Benesh. okay paul thanks a lot for joining us did i get the name right at the very end oh you did oh fuck yeah. i thought i was gonna fuck it i up. love when people ask first because it's yeah. all over the place. The, the way I Americanized it is I had a doctor come out and say it that way, Benashik. I go, oh, that's smooth, you know, because people are usually all around like Benazi, and I just try to help them out. Benazi, I heard, ben, I was yeah. watching one of your fights today. Um, the guy, I think his name was Clark, uh, the, the black guy. Um, uh, so that's my next opponent, but that was against uh, Nicholas. Oh, sorry, Nicholas. Okay, yeah, so yeah, I'm mixing yeah. up the names. So I was watching that one, and they, yeah, they then they totally butchered, butchered yeah. the last name. It's all good. Um, yeah, there's a lot of fighters out there. What? Who do we see uh, from the PFL? Brendan Lotnane. That name is impossible, impossible to pronounce. Even we had to like sit there and listen to him for like five minutes. Um, okay, so well, first, thanks for joining us. I, I might have mentioned that already, but. Uh, I've had tons of coffee, so we're on fire. We're flying. We're gonna we're gonna tell that journey story of what actually brought you from Poland to the U.S. How did you get into Muay Thai, and what led you to Thailand? Okay, uh, we're not gonna talk about flat Earth theory today. Uh, probably a bit later. I we'll thought get that's there. what I was here yeah. for. <laughs> <laughs> that we gotta warm up the audience a bit first. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, just ex take us through the ringer of like really what uh, originally you're born in Poland. Um, what, what brought you to the U S again, and how did you actually get into Muay Thai and what brought you to Thailand and, and to this high level of, you know, um, uh, like pro athlete essentially now. It's a fun story because it, it starts as the typical like immigrant family. Uh, I was born in a very small, like farm town, like two roads, one, one barber shop, one store, like two police officers at the police station. And I actually lived above the police station. Uh, with my mother, my grandmother, uh, my grandmother raised me, my mother raised me, 
my dad, uh, my birth father worked in Germany. I never really saw him. And my mom wanted a better life for us. When she got her master's degree in Poland, she just dropped everything and moved us to the United States. Uh, I was like nine years old. So I spent my first decade in Poland and then moved over to, to the United States and we started everything over. And I think part of that is why I've been able to kind of leave everything I've worked for and start over to do something that I want to do. And that's how I ended up here in Thailand. So that's the short story. And when, now you said she got her master's degree. What, what was that in specifically? Physical education, okay. which is a lot different than physical education in America where, you know, you have this out of shape, uh, <laughs> the phys ed teacher that yeah. kind of is on back in my day, like a Palm pilot, you know? And telling you to play dodgeball, barely paying attention to kids. You know, my mother, uh, you know, you swear, you run laps, you do push-ups. She's still coaching, like, the swimming team, the gymnastics team, soccer, things like that. So uh, I grew up with a mom that was a disciplinarian and uh, had very high standards and expectations. And I think that was part of the, like, work ethic that I grew up with. And moving to the States, it's like that Polish uh, immigrant family where she's cleaning houses, taking English as a second language classes uh, at night. And it took quite a few years before she ended up go- <clears throat> going back to college and uh, creating a future for me. So I actually didn't get into athletics or combat sports until I was 18 or 19 years old. Everything was about school, making my parents proud and uh, living up to those like really high expectations uh, because they gave me pretty much the potential to do something with my life, a better life than I would have had. Where, where did Poland. you move uh, into the U.S. when you first arrived? Connecticut. Into Connecticut. Yeah, now we have like a little Poland in Connecticut, uh, but my mom didn't want to live there. She wanted to uh, Americanize us in a way because You can move to America and live in your little pocket with your community and never even have to really learn English. (laughs) Yeah, like even for yourself, was it easy for you to kind of, uh, you know, integrate into the culture of the U.S.? Like was your level of English like... uh, I had none. None. So when you first showed up at at school, and and I'm assuming elementary school in Connecticut, how long did it take you to kind of be able to get into these classrooms and be able to, you know, absorb the education system as well with pretty much zero English. It's funny because the standards in Europe at were s- so much higher. And I just recently heard a podcast where they were talking about how the U S fell down to like number 37 or 38 in mathematics and all these different uh, standardized tests. And I go, Oh yeah, of course, because a lot of Americans think they're at the top, like we're a superpower. Uh, but I actually, was sitting playing with Legos in the classroom for the first two years during math class and then just taking the tests because we were two years ahead in Europe. Uh, so, like, my second grade in uh, America, I was already at, like, the fifth grade level pretty much yeah, in it's, math. It's crazy. Like, I, I had an Indian roommate in Australia, and he was kind of explaining it to me. He's like, we learned calculus in grade five. Like, <laughs> in the U.S., Canada, you don't learn that till like, grade 11 or 12. I don't know. I don't know. They don't really push the maths as much, but definitely mm. these Eastern European countries in India, like 
again, yeah, immediately you guys are two, three years ahead. I think feelings play a part in like making people feel validated for being able to pass a test. And I, I remember growing up where feelings didn't really matter, uh, both in, <laughs> in our family. Uh, you can be very honest. You know, like if, if people are gaining weight in your family, I remember sitting at the dinner table uh, the last trip I had to Europe and uh, my aunt was pregnant and she just had her kid, but it was like six months past and her mom looked at her like, you know, it's been six months. There's no excuse for this. Like, and we're all <laughs> like the 12, a dozen people sitting at the table and no one batted an eye. Like, that's rude. You know, they want you to be healthy and they're going to say it and be blunt. Yeah, I think it's not, uh, you know, this is kind of a bit taboo in like Western culture, back mm -hmm. Canada, US. But even here, like, you know, with my, I'll be with my girlfriend downstairs, and she'll be like, "You're fat," and I'm like, "Yeah, I'm getting fat now." Th see, Thai culture is pretty similar, right? Like, yeah. you go back to the gym, even if you're a fighter, you had a six pack a month ago. Then you go back to the gym, maybe you've been eating too much pad thai in the meantime, and they'll just squeeze you up, oh, pumpuy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, every time I've kind of went on diets or got back in shape, it's always been like a friend. Or someone in Asia that's like, yo, what's going on there, buddy? And yeah. you're like, oh, fuck. All right. But, you know, back home, they, when you say that, I remember I would say it to maybe like, you know, friends or family. Hey, you're getting a bit chubby. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa easy, easy. I'm like, all right, well, sure. Go eat another chocolate bar. Do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, it's like a little comment. It's like a little planted bomb, yeah. you know, like in the back of your brain. You're like, yeah. haha, yeah. And then you go home and you think about it. Start looking at yourself in the mirror. Like it, it reminds you and then you go, ah, fuck. It's I. tough love though. It's good though as well. Yeah. I mean, it pushes you, to, you know, you need to hear that from the right people as well. Be like, all right, I guess I got to do something. And, and then you go after it. All right, guys, just a quick interruption. A uh, quick shout out to our sponsor, Five Star Marine. Again, we weren't going to take sponsors on, but I know Sean's standing very well, and I love what they're doing over there. Um, they're a VIP speedboat tour company on the island of Phuket. So if you don't want the headache of dealing with, you know, tour companies that are just going to take you around wherever they want to take you to, uh, go check out Five Star Marine. They are over at Boat and Lagoon. We'll leave links in the description. Uh, it's some wicked, awesome stuff. Check it out. I don't know if that was Boston or Australian. Anyways, check it out. Um, on your side now, you, you're growing up in the U.S. You said you really didn't uh, get more into sports and specifically like fighting until you're 18 and 19. Can you explain that part of your life story? When did that all connect? The thing is, uh, I like pressure and I like the responsibility of success and failure to lie on my shoulders. I didn't like that in team sports. My parents would put me into football for a season or two seasons, then into wrestling for a season and soccer for a season. I used to fly back to Poland and play goalie, like do little soccer camps during the summer, things like that. But I, I just didn't like the, the results sometimes would be driven by the actions of other people. I wanted to control that. And I would be fine with failing as long as I'm the one that caused like the result. And I also wanted the glory of the victory to lie on my shoulders as well you know and so that's why i did a lot of extreme sports as a kid uh never like regular athletics it was skateboarding for like a dozen years i was doing videography uh since fifth grade you know with tapes yeah I used like to a tape camera then getting home and rewinding and fast forwarding and trying to get it on my computer through like a fire wire and into like this old a program called Sony Vegas, and I I was hustling DVDs when I was like 14, putting edits together for different skateboarders in Connecticut and for 
teams. Well, I think that's how a lot, like for me, videography, I got into it when I was 15, 16. Okay. Skateboarding. I yep. think a lot had to do with CKY. <laughs> if you remember that yeah I because remember. everyone yeah. saw them now this is before like it is bam margera but it's before cky 2k this is like the original and it was like i don't know for me as a kid everybody would go to the block blockbuster and i'd always go to the skate shop mm. and look for the new toy machine yeah. video what's out and it was always vhs and it was it was amateur like it was just the pretty much them putting it yeah. together and that's what yeah led me into getting into to uh, I was doing video editing on the little cassettes. Mm -hmm. um, this is I, when I graduated high school. They were just coming out with the CDs, so like I didn't get into the digital oh, I didn't side. Get to that, no. Yeah, we were using like cut, cut. It was crazy, and then you're doing it on like a larger VHS. But that's kind of what I remember really like sparked the the interest of a lot of people in my high school. Yeah. Were these like skate videos? Because you would get your little camcorder and you go out and you know you go to your local like. We have we honest we didn't even have a skate park at that time, so you'd be finding you know, like any curb where you could go off of. Yeah, I I'd put together edits, you know, for YouTube. So I was doing YouTube when I was in middle school, and putting up videos of us getting kicked out of spots, like edits of like those fail videos, funny videos, more serious like technical stuff, and kind of like my fight style at the time. I was just I wasn't the most technical skateboarder, but I was willing to just say I don't give a fuck and do the biggest thing you know especially when there was more pressure like there was more people it was like a skateboarding competition at a skate park something like that uh, I really enjoyed taking big risks for for, yeah, for the reward that you get from the crowd and the feeling that you get from doing something that has like a lot at stake and then big injuries too <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I had my first surgery when I was 16 years old was it yeah. was it going for, going for a big trick or specifically yeah, like was, what happened? I was doing a tray flip. You guys know what that is? Three sixty, <laughs> just three sixty flip, yeah, yeah. three sixty flip off a loading dock, and one of my feet, uh, the toes slid off the board, but the board kept going because the other foot landed, and I sat on my knee and I blew it out. And, um, yeah, I, I ended up blowing out my knee, having to have surgery on my right knee. Like, all my injuries in Muay Thai, it's funny. Uh, none of them are really from Muay Thai. They're all stemming from skateboarding. 12 years of skateboarding and, like, eight years of snowboarding. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's all I did. I was kind of, like, I was, like, the perfect son that, on his free time, wanted to do what he wants to do. So, he would do everything perfectly to tell everyone to fuck off mm -hmm. so I can do what I want. Uh, that's kind of how I lived most of my life. And so I'd be riding like super sport bikes when I was 18. I had a, a Ninja 1000. Then I had a 1400, like the Hayabusa version. Uh, so I'd be riding those, skateboarding, snowboarding. And then uh, when I was in high school, we ended up getting in fights in my friend's backyard. It was actually kind of friendly. Like it was just an activity we did. We went to my friend's house random guys from school we would put like maybe a couple dollars on it like oh would you fight this kid from high school like it, it wasn't bad blood it was actually like a friendly competition boxing and, gloves and, yeah boxing gloves or karate gloves whatever we could find and we would just go to first blood and one of the guys knew how to fight he was trained he was my best friend since middle school now looking back at it i'm kind of like that's kind of fucked up because yeah. you knew what you were doing 
and you were kind of fucking us up, you know? And he beat me up one day, so I turned to him, and kind of naturally how a lot of people have this happen to them, I go, how do you do that, you know? Like, what I just felt, what you did to me, teach me. And I kind of lucked out because Connecticut, it's not known for huge gyms, uh, and especially at the time in, like, 2010, it wasn't mainstream. You couldn't learn anything on Facebook or on YouTube or Instagram. So you really had to try to find someone and you were just hoping it wasn't like a bullshit artist, you know? And I ended up training under a guy. Uh, we went to a garage and first day they go, okay, shark tank. And I just did that for six weeks until I had my first fight. The trainer was actually under Mark Delagrati in Boston, uh, under sit your tongue. Mm-hmm. So I kind of lucked out that it was, coming from a source that was legitimate, that was actually linked to Thailand. And sure, along the way, it gets a little watered down. Mark uh, works with a lot of UFC fighters and things like that, but it was a legitimate source that the information was passed down from. What is sh- uh, When you say Shark Tank, what do you mean by that? So Shark Tank, you go into your round, and every minute you get a fresh person, oh, okay. uh, and you're the one in the middle. Yeah, or we, I guess in wrestling, or what would they call that? Like the gauntlet. Like gauntlet. Yeah, something like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. I I learned to fight before I learned how to do the techniques. Mm-hmm. So I came in and training back then was a lot different than it is now. You know, like right now it's a lot more systemized. It's a business as well. So you have to be able to cater to beginners. You have to be able to cater to people in their 40s, 50s, 60s. It's a great activity for everyone now. Mm-hmm. Before, it w- you went to a fighting gym to fight. And that's what was expected of you. So when I walked in, that's what I pictured. I've only seen movies of fighting and I've only seen the actual fights. So when I walked in, I was like, okay, this this is how they do it. You walk in, they, you put on a pair of gloves. They go, oh, put on this mouthpiece that doesn't fit. Maybe someone else wore yeah. it. And let's see what you got, you know. And you'd get in a fight for pretty much five rounds. You get Shark Tank. I did that for six weeks. They looked at me, oh, you're pretty tough. Let's have your first fight. I had my first fight at six weeks. Yeah, and there's not, you know, there's no initial, like, you know, dream of this becoming a career. It's kind of just a hobby or something that you're interested in Mm -hmm. doing at that point in time. So you're around, like, 18, 19 at this point? Yeah. Just kind of graduating high school? Yeah, exactly. Did you, after this, did you pursue into university or college? Yeah. And Uh, what did you go for? I had to. (laughs) Yeah, I mean. Uh, When I was in high school, I graduated with high honors and my... Parents wanted me to go, well, I actually personally also wanted to become a physical therapist. That exact year that I was graduating, it changed to a doctorate. And when I looked at the timeline of how long the doctorate takes, that increased amount of credits and hours, I was like, there's no way. I don't want to start my life when I'm like almost 30 years old. And so we had a lot of like back and forth of like, well, maybe I can become an anesthetist which is like a step down from anesthesiologist without a doctorate title. Still makes six figures. You just need a master's. And on your way, you have to go through uh, nursing school four years. I did my first two years of prereq, like anatomies and microbiology. I got in the program as the youngest person. I was 19 at the time. Then I did one year of clinical in the program. And then uh, I failed a test on purpose. Uh, because I didn't want to do it. I remember going back home. Um, 
I wanted to do videography. I wanted to do online work, things like this. And my parents looked at me like, yeah, everyone wants to do these things as a hobby. This isn't like a job that's going to provide you insurance and safety and security. And so I kind of gave up on it, you know, and I just went the way that they wanted me to. So that way, maybe one day I can do what I want to do. And that's exactly what happened Uh, that last year. It's funny. I missed the test by like 0.2 of a point. If I got 0.2 more, it would have rounded up to the next point and I would have passed and had to go on to my uh, fourth year. And what, which year was this when this all happened? So it must, like I graduated 2010, must've been 2013. Cause it was my third year in college. I finished the 30, uh, two years of prereqs, one year of, uh, of clinical and I'd, I'd still be fighting. Uh, this is when I found out this is what I want to do. Cause I fought at Madison square garden. I fought a Dutch fighter called Jason Van Ooyen. He was undefeated at the time. He was smashing everyone. I had my first full rules Muay Thai fight at Bally's Casino in Atlantic City. It was the first like exciting fight with no gear, and I was fighting another tall opponent. I was undefeated at the time, and I see this Dutch guy bald, just like jacked, and hitting pads. You know that like relentless, tight Dutch style. Wah, wah, wah. I turn to my coach and I go, "Man, I want to look like that one day," you know, and. Maybe six months later, my coach called and he goes, they're having an event at Medicine Square Garden. There's a catch, though. I go, yeah. He's like, you remember that guy that you said you want to look like one day that was smashing pads when we're in Atlantic City? I go, yeah, what's up? That's the opponent. I go, all right, fuck it. You know, like it's like your idols become your rivals at some point. And we took the fight. And in the second round, I dropped him with a head kick. And I swear in that exact moment when I dropped him, he stared at me on the way down and he had this very stoic face. Even when he got hit, his face didn't change. He was staring at me as his body was like coming down. Uh, But I remember in that moment being like, oh, I can do this shit. You know, like I'm not just flirting around and playing with, uh, like, oh, let, let's see what happens next. I'm at Madison Square Garden under those famous lights of the theater in a sold-out crowd and just the, like, reverberations in the room and the excitement after that fight. I was like, okay, I think I have something here. So you're, uh, you're This is in the middle of, like, the night before, like, that week going to the hospital and collecting like data on clients, like their the uh, like the medications that they're taking, what they're allergic to, taking notes on that, and then training at night, and then waiting tables at night in uh, on the weekends to to make money. At this point, so you're you're were you still training in Connecticut, and mm-hmm. then these fights uh, that that was at uh, MSG. What promotion was that for at the time? At the time. Um, the first one was called Take On. It was a big promotion in uh, in America, and they were the ones that like initially were the first to do all the Madison Square Garden theater fights. Uh, and then they like rebranded it to Triumph Combat, something like that. I ended up fighting at Madison Square Garden three times while I was in America. At this point, now you're kind of looking to transition and. In- getting out of the education system and maybe focusing on the fighting full-time and also Mm. your passion for videography. What was that day where you really cut ties to the education and kind of said full-time, fuck it, I'm going into this? 
I never really did. I wasn't willing to settle. So I did it all at the same time. And I feel like a lot of people feel like they hear these stories of like everyone just like throwing everything to the side and selling whatever they own and going all in. And I've had those moments, but they were carefully planned and calculated. I think a lot of people do that. And then uh, the first hiccup happens and they have no savings. They have no like, they have nothing to fall back on. And then they have to take like a year to recover, recuperate, make some money back. Like I've met so many people that come here to Thailand for six months. Maybe they come just for one month and they leave everything at home. Eventually you got to go back or you run out of money or you didn't set yourself up for success over the long term. And to me, everything was about the long term. Like when people promise me this or a job, whatever it may be, I didn't think like, oh, wow, that sounds really good right now. I always try to picture myself a few years ahead of time and where does that lead me? And the main thing was with this clinical study, I remember my parents telling me, oh, you can work three 12 hour shifts, you know, and and then you can do your training and whatever else you want to do in life, like the rest of the week. And I was like, oh, that sounds kind of good. But then I, uh, when I was waiting tables on the weekends, I was doing the hourly tips and things like that versus what I would have done. And I go, I have a lot of freedom waiting tables, making pretty good money, almost the same as I would if I graduated. And then on top of it, I'm starting to teach privates and things like that. I'm like, oh, I'm actually making more money doing this. It makes no sense just to follow a system because that's the way it was designed and because that's what my parents knew, mm-hmm. you know, like you're passed down only what that person is familiar with, which that's what my parents were familiar with. My mom was the first one to graduate from college in our, in our whole family. So she obviously wanted that for me as well, you know, because she lived a better life than her parents and she wanted me to live a better life than her. And in turn, I wanted to show my respect and everything. So I did end up graduating. I switched to a health and exercise science major. I graduated first in class. I didn't even pick up my diploma. I dropped all my shit and I moved to Thailand. That connection and bringing you to Thailand, usually I'm assuming, like you said, it's very well calculated and there is a process. Can you piece that process together for anyone out there listening of when you make that decision, what steps did you take and what actually led you to even come here? I ended up doing everything at the same time. So I was in college. Like I told you, I was still fighting. So that MSG fight was while I was still doing clinicals and I was working on the weekends as a waiter. So I was just trying to maximize my time in every single area. I knew that I wasn't training on Saturday night and Sunday. So I would be working doubles on Saturday and Sunday, which is actually when you get the most tips. And then I was training Monday through Friday at night while going to school in the mornings and then fitting in privates anywhere else that I could because I wanted to set myself up again for that long-term success. If, if I dialed back like, Oh, I need more time and recovery. I knew that's the youngest that I'll ever be with the most amount of energy to do all of these things at the same time. And then I can save up money while building something that will also like maintain a little bit of cash flow once I do get to Thailand. And I uh, initially it was just two trips just to feel out what Thailand is like. I didn't go to, you know, a lot of people are romanticizing like, Oh, training in paradise. I didn't see the paradise. I saw the inside of the plane 
off the plane into the gym, then like my hard bed in a bamboo hut, and then back to training, fighting, back on the plane, back home. I didn't see any of the beauty and paradise that romanticizes training in Thailand. Five, six hours of training, not a lot of time to like appreciate the beauty. You know, when you decided to come over here, did you have a roadmap in place of, okay, I'm going to come, I'm going to train in Thailand, get the best training as possible. It's very authentic. And this is going to be my career path in fighting. I never, I was being realistic. I, I pictured what people, or I heard about what people were making. And I knew that if I wanted to follow this, I'm going to have to do some extracurricular things in order to make it happen. And yeah, you can only be in the gym so many hours. So all of those other hours depends what you do with them, you know, and I chose to run my own website, run my own blog. A lot of people don't have the flexibility sometimes or the creative mind to do such a or thing. The skills. It's not that easy either. Like, that, no that part of that 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 creative work uh and, and especially in terms of like the video editing any social or sorry any type of marketing work website development mm -hmm. i mean this takes time it takes time and that's the thing is you have to invest in that as much as you invest in your own career that uh came from a hobby so i always respected building myself as a fighter but i also respected building myself up as a as a creator or as an entrepreneur, a lot of people want to buy like one of these courses of like how to get rich quick. And they don't understand that it's also a grind over the years, over the years. Like initially I was making like a hundred bucks a month, 300 bucks a month, 500 bucks a month. And like every year it would go up a little bit, but it was like very incremental. It wasn't like I was going from like 500 to 5,000. It was never like 10 X. And a lot of people that I talk to that ask me, like, what do I do to supplement my income the way that you do? I go, well, then I'm explaining to you this 10-year process that I went through. And as soon as I do that, you lose, you lose them. But it doesn't have to be the way I do it. It could be a lot shorter. My fiance works, but sh she works as like a tech support. Uh, some people want to work as designers, like you said, like web design, maybe uh, uh, visual design, um, whatever specialization that you go in, like respect the craft. Uh, maybe you don't have to love it, you know, like it, it's not always great to make what you love your job because then it becomes a job that's harder to enjoy, right? So I try to mix the two is like something that, a grind that I respect to make money with and then the hobby that I really love. And that's what fighting was like. I, even when I signed with the biggest promotions in the world, uh, like glory at the time, lion fight, uh, when it was on, still on TV and they were paying be better money. I, I wasn't, ex those were like bonuses for me. I, I didn't depend on them. And the second that I started to, when I was with glory, I started to lose and I started to think about it even within the fight. I'd be like, oh, shit, I'm going to get half a paycheck if I get caught again, that type of thing. Yeah, and that mentality can change the game, right? I mean, oh, 100%. That, that stress on yourself. It was not good. And yeah, your, your fiancé uh, is the uh, Muay Thai yogi. Like yeah, yogi. yeah. Is it Muay Thai yoga? Yogi. Yogi. Yeah. I was going to say yogi, but I was, anyways, confusing the words. Did you guys come over together or did you meet over in Thailand? 
a little bit of both. Uh, I was co-hosting a retreat in Thailand with Sean from Muay Thai Guy. We're co-hosting it. I was promoting it on Instagram. And we got to talking because she was thinking about coming to Thailand. And once we started to talk, I kept it very professional, <laughs> as I always do. <laughs> uh, the flirtation, sh she'll deny it, came from her side first. <laughs> okay. So I, I kind of felt it out before making any moves myself. And I was teaching a seminar in Virginia. So I, I, I'm from Connecticut. You know, I'm from up north in New England. So I was already like two thirds of the way down. And I remember we're kind of chatting and like really hitting it off. And her family felt a little nervous about her coming to Bangkok. It's Thailand. You know, uh, a lot of Americans, especially families that are like hidden away from uh, traveling that far across the world, they think of like the hangover, yeah. you know, like, oh my God, that's where my daughter is going. And she comes from a very loving, well put together family. And... So I thought to myself, okay, I just finished teaching a seminar, doing eight hours of privates. I was there for 13 hours in Virginia teaching and sparring and teaching privates. And I'm hopped up on Red Bull. I go, I'm just going to pull an all-nighter and I'm going to drive down and settle this. I'll go talk to her parents. And we never met in person by this time. Like we, we were FaceTiming and talking to each other online. But you never know how it is until you see each other in person. I had a contact through her aunt and I set it up this way on purpose. I had her, I was like, can you go outside, like have breakfast outside and then I can meet up with you guys there. So her aunt was uh, having breakfast with her. I called her up and as I'm looking at her and I'm like, hey, what are you up to? And she's like, oh, I'm just grabbing breakfast with my aunt. And as I'm walking up behind her, I go, oh, well, you look beautiful in that dress or whatever she was wearing that day, that specific thing, like that black dress or red shirt. And she goes, oh, thank you. And then just realize, like, how would you know what I'm wearing? We're on the phone. <laughs> and then I sat down next to her and she just turned to her left like, oh, my God. Ended up meeting her parents, explaining the whole situation and uh, trying to tell them that, like, Thailand's not a third world country where there's no plumbing or <laughs> uh, somewhere that your daughter is going to get kidnapped. Yeah, it's, it's actually kidnapped. probably safer here than in the U.S., let's be honest. At this point, right. I think so, too. Right. Yeah. Did Now, you said you started off in Chiang Mai and you're at Quest? Uh, I started off, I, I kind of tested everywhere. Uh, I did two one-month trips. It was around the islands, like Koh Phangan, Koh Samui. I did three fights there when I was an amateur. And then my, that was those two trips. Then I remember I was in the U.S. Uh, the first time I moved to Thailand uh, was I had my last big amateur fight against the number one East Coast guy called Gaius Ebrat. He was from Five Points Academy in New York City. He was a big Sitman Chai guy. He had 30-plus amateur fights. I had 27 amateur fights. We fought at Madison Square Garden as the main event. And I was 9-0 that year. I won the Nationals. I won the Worlds two times. And we ended up fighting as a main event at MSG. I ended up beating him in a decision. But I felt his clinch, like how much he controlled me. And I never felt that before. And it's because I had a physical advantage of height. And I no longer had that against him. 
and then I can see the technical skill that like we're both the same height, same build. And now it comes down to technique and I didn't let him hurt me or land any big shots, but the best that I could do is neutralize. And I never wanted to feel that again. The fact that someone can control me and the only thing I can try to do is survive uh, while someone does that. So that fight taught me, a, despite winning, it taught me a big lesson. And I always looked at fighting like a pyramid of like when you turn professional. There's a lot of guys here at the bottom uh, making this like big base and foundation of professional fighting, professional fighting. Because there's a lot of MMA guys that jump in for a $500 paycheck or uh, guys that want to be called professionals. Or someone that's an amateur has maybe is like six and zero doesn't know any better like oh I'm the best guy in my local East Bumfuck nowhere uh, I'm ready to go or they see one guy that they can beat as a professional and then they go pro and but what I was noticing especially at the time a lot of guys were going like four and zero in lion fight and then they're fighting like guys like Joe Natawat mm-hmm. they're fighting like top level ties world champions after they go for and oh. So when I was thinking about it, it was I can't just be ready for these guys at the bottom. I have to be ready for the guys at the peak because there's not much in the middle whatsoever. There, there it's not a gradual progression, you know? So I knew that I had to make a big change and, uh, I just graduated. I was driving my car, a deer popped out. I totaled my car on this deer, smashed my windshield, the whole front of the car was dented, the car was totaled. And I remember my dad turning to me being like, okay, now you gotta grow up because at the time I had everything paid off. I always worked really hard to not have anything keeping me in place. So if I wanted and I got a golden ticket, I can take that golden ticket and go and be free to do it. So everything, my my phones would be paid off, my car, my motorcycles, everything was paid off. And at that time, he was like, oh, well, now you got to get a car, get an apartment. You just graduated. Like, welcome to the real world. Mm. I go, mm, I don't think so. I'm going to uh, I'm going to move to Thailand. And I dropped everything. I took the paycheck from the insurance company for the car. And uh, I moved to Thailand, lived in Bangkok for two months. I made my pro debut. And... I had my face broken in the, my pro debut from a he- accidental headbutt in the last 10 seconds. Which stadium were you at? Lumpini This, at this was point? super Muay Thai. It was my first ever pro fight. I fought uh, Mateo Sally, Peruvian guy that was gold medalist Pan Am. I didn't know any of these things. I was a young cocky kid. I had like 12 wins in a row in Muay Thai. Um, I just did two months in Bangkok. I fought him. I beat him on decision. But in the last five seconds, he dove under my cross. And when he came up, the top of his head hit the side of my uh, face here. It broke three bones inside the nose. And then, see, I'm not as beautiful when you look at the camera <laughs> as I used to. We got his wrong it, side. You can see, yeah, they got my wrong side. I was telling him before we started the <laughs> podcast is that, like, <laughs> my right side is really beautiful. It was uh, actually, actually, the whole setup is the other one. I just knew you were coming, so we thought we'd <laughs> stitch you up a bit. <laughs> no, I'm joking. The le- you can see the left side is more can't see the um the curve of my nose as much yeah. uh from the right on the left you can see it's curved here and then i also have a bump here that used to never be there i, I used to have a smaller nose actually believe it or not i have pictures for proof 
but he broke three bones and then one that was attached to like the orbital plate under un- under the eye. And uh, I knew I had to take a little time off. I went down south and then I was with uh, the legendary Lawrence Kenshin that no one knows who he is. Uh, <laughs> I was with the ghost of Lawrence Kenshin, the striking breakdowns guy. Uh, Sean and uh, Namsak Noy was on the islands uh, building his gym. Which island was that? That was on Kopangan. Okay. And I was just taking like a week to kind of process everything. Uh, a girl I was dating at the time and I broke up because she thought I was going to come back to the States and I decided to stay in Thailand. I just had my face broken right after like getting momentum going, having my pro debut. And so I was kind of gathering myself and then uh, I met Namsak Noy. And I remember being in a mood like, like kind of like, um, I don't mind if you tell me no, I don't like, like no feelings, no emotion. And I, I was sitting with him and in the middle of the conversation, I turned to him and I asked this legend, would you ever sponsor a white fighter to live in your gym before they even opened? And he's like, uh, let me think tomorrow. I'll let you know. And <laughs> he was like, uh, I have a surprise for you. You come to the gym and we see. And I, I went to his gym and all of a sudden I'm inside the ring. There's no other fighters, no one else there. There's like 20 Thai people, which I later found out was his family. And they're just watching. And he did maybe 30 minutes of pad work with me where I just didn't want to show that I'm ever tired because yeah. I'm in front of all these people. There's, there's no rounds. There's no breaks. I'm, we're just hitting pads and training. And uh, then later I find out, oh, that's his father. That's his mother. I met his family. His brother was there as the trainer. And then um, I got the sponsorship at his gym. I lived in a bunk bed room. Uh, spent close to half a year there uh, after being in Bangkok. So altogether, I was there for almost 10 months. And then my visa was running out. And that was my first year in Thailand, uh, making that big jump from the United States to Thailand and uh, I minimized my costs because I was sponsored. I was living inside the gym. Like I had the money uh, saved, like I said, like throughout high school, throughout college. I didn't go to parties. I didn't do any of the crazy stuff or uh, spending my paychecks just to go out on the weekend. I just put it aside, put it aside, put it aside. And over time I had a pretty big lump sum in my bank, in my savings. And I still didn't use it while I was there. Um, There's differences between being a paying fighter and a sponsored fighter. It's really tough being a sponsored fighter because you're owned by the gym. I ended up fighting three times in five weeks under Namsik Noy. I won all the fights. I wouldn't have gotten the tutelage that I got if it wasn't for being a sponsored fighter and living in the gym. But, uh, yeah, I took a lot of wear and tear and a lot of uh, emotional damage that I had I had yeah, to kind well of work you're through. You're roughing it there as well. Like, yeah. you're probably sleeping, like, bamboo hut style as well. Uh, like no, it was a concrete room. The gym was nice, but uh, for the first two, three months, there was no heated water. So during rainy season, it was very cold, and it was just a fan room, uh, like a very small box, maybe, like, a quarter size of this yeah. uh, with a bunk bed and... Uh, like there was like a 16 year old uh, fighter uh, on the top bunk. I was on the bottom bunk and there's one fan. So neither one of you really gets it. 
Yeah. Uh, and yeah, just life was just training, eating inside the gym, sleeping, and doing it over and over and over. Whether you had staff, whether you had infections, like it's it's like they don't even know. Uh, like what is that? It's a pimple. <laughs> you think that like that's growing you as as a fighter? Like it's making you much more harder. So when you're getting maybe like let's say Americans maybe coming over here for a month, did did that? Can you ha- did you, you can tough it out. You can tough it out for a month. You know, you can't tough it out for six months. And that was pretty much the reason why I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it the way that you heard, you know, like um, John Wayne Parr coming yeah. over here and just kind of sleeping in the room and just just doing the life the way it was uh, back then. You know, it's now that we have foreign owners of gyms and things like that, it's a, a lot easier to communicate and, and, and kind of figure things out. There's even sponsored fighters that aren't like fighting, you know, like they're, they're kind of just helping promote the gym and doing other things for the gym. Um, but I, I was simply there to fight, to live inside the gym. I kind of put all the marketing stuff I was doing by the wayside. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did my best between the sessions, but it was uh, it was just a period of growth, clinching an hour every single day, running every single session. I couldn't do anything else. There was one so session. So that, yeah. This is just purely for, uh, I mean, it's also for the love, the passion of the sport. At, at, these, at this point in time, and most Muay Thai fighters that come over here, are they really thinking about the roadmap of where this career could go? And, and that kind of leads into the question of, you are now fighting for the North American WBC, mm-hmm. t- WBC title in New York. Um, for any fighters out there that might be a bit confused on different promotions. Where should you go? What are the better ones? How do we climb up in the rankings? Can you kind of paint the picture of someone going through the WBC, let's say, promotional um, career ladder? And and what is the pinnacle of the top? You start amateur locally. You try to be the best that you can be. Take as many fights as you can. Smokers, whatever it may be, that's local. It doesn't matter. You win, you lose, just get the experience. And having fights will make you train that much harder in the gym. You know, some, some people, they, they worry about having to first get in sh- it's, it's like the person that's like, oh, I need to get in shape before I go to the gym. You know, because I'm afraid of how I look in front of the, all the fit people. Uh, you, you have to shut all of that down and, and just do it. Mm-hmm. Just do it, Shia LaBeouf. Just do it. Uh I ended up wanting to just fight, fight, fight. Like I said, I fought in the first six weeks. I didn't know if I was good or not. Uh, It was great that social media wasn't a big thing at the time because not everyone is watching and talking about it. But I was just getting in the ring, getting ring time. So you want to fight locally. You want to fight as much as possible. You take the smokers. You take the little fights in the basketball courts, whatever it is. Then maybe more on the regional circuit, whatever those local promotions are. Some of them are uh, organized by WBC, some of them by WMO or WMC. And you work up the ladder, then you have the national tournaments. And that's really like where you get a lot of experience because you can fight three times in one weekend, four times in one weekend. And you do as many of those as possible once you have a few amateur fights or smokers. Then you try to fight everyone possible and become the best amateur because once you go pro... There's a lot less opportunities uh, because he, they have to pay. You know, as an amateur, 
there's a million people to choose from people figuring out if this is really what they want to do. So when you're an amateur, you should be competing as much as possible. That record resets anyways. So you shouldn't care too much about it. And And then if you fight enough as a professional, it's almost the same. Like the ties, they ask you how many total fights do you have? They don't ask you, uh, about like your specific wins and losses once in a while you'll hear it but most of the time it's about experience like how many fight I remember being in the gym and a trainer telling me like oh he he still knew uh, like 90 fights you know like they view like having a hundred fights as someone like okay you're ready maybe for Bangkok to start fighting in the stadiums and things like that so we you have to appreciate um, Again, that like long-term vision. Do these people, for anyone out there in U.S. or Europe, and like, is it a barrier to entry? Like, you have to come to Thailand. You have to do it from here. Can they, can they still go like through these national? And we talked about intercontinental, and then getting into the world rankings of WBC. Can Mm -hmm. you do that from your home home country without having to come to Thailand? Mm. World rankings, probably. Well, yeah, yeah, without having to come to Thailand, yes. But without having to fight internationally, no, because it's a world ranking. You know, you have to be able to fight names and people that have a ranking already in order to raise yourself up. You have to take it from someone. Uh, if there's no one to take from, then you're not going to be noticed, you know. Yeah. But it's a gradual process, right? Like, I always thought it was pretty easy. A lot of people th- think about it, I think, a little bit too much, like, when do I move on to like the e- like fighting everyone on the East Coast? It's like, okay, once I'm the best and I fought everyone locally, okay, well now when do I fight in the national circuit? Okay, once I fought everyone on the East Coast. Okay, now when do I go international? Okay, once I feel like I fought most of the guys and I'm at that level uh, and I've shown, or like let's say I went five rounds with another like top-ranked guy in my country, Okay, now we can go international. You can start in Thailand. There's so many people that have done it. And I think a lot of the time, uh, it actually helps to have this experience with the, the as brutal as Muay Thai is, to do it the way it was always done, without shin guards, without headgear, go in, do it raw. And then the rest of it kind of seems like... Uh, like a walk in the park, you know, to put on shin guards, to put on headgear and do it that way. Um, do, do the ties, do they look at these promotions like WBC as like it's the high standard or do the tie or ties within Thailand, they kind of have their own fight promotions in Bangkok. Mm. Do they kind of disregard it? No, it's not disregarded because uh, a lot of the ties are ranked within them. And uh, I think only recently it's become uh, more closely monitored in terms of who's fighting who internationally and being kept track of uh, when before it would be pretty much like if it's a huge fight and it's popular enough to gain uh, recognition, then you would end up on the rankings. And then if you fought someone else that was on the rankings, but I think now they are keeping more track of who is fighting who on all the promotions. Yeah. And uh, they're having youth leagues and tournaments, youth tournaments and professional tournaments. And that's really helping with the ranking, especially I think what kind of woke it up is uh, IFMA uh, partnering with the Olympics and starting their own ranking system. And uh, and uh, they were cl- working closely with WMC. So I think the other organizations like WBC really stepped it up to uh, get on that same level of being able to track their fighters. 
uh, WMO, the one I'm ranked number three under, is really big in Thailand. It's run by Thais. And so they look at all the local fights, like in Bangkok. They really keep track of fighters, like all the way down to like rank 50. Mm-hmm. What, what do, uh, for the promotions within Thailand, like when you're saying trying to become a champion at Lumpani, is there a specific no promotion? No longer a thing, by the way. This is all finished now? It, unfortunately so. Because of the current situation? Or since then? Because of the current situation, at, the, at, at initially they said it was um, because of the gambling. Oh, okay. uh, the stadium moved and ended up going to the outskirts of Bangkok versus having walking traffic. Uh, everything was like kind of based on ideas, like uh, we'll send tours there on buses <laughs> and uh, we'll add like a massage shop and this and that. Like so there's make no it longer like an stadium crowd. champions. This kind of terms disappeared yeah. a little bit. I, I believe Rajadamran may still have them. I know Lumpini does no longer does they just do the entertainment shows like the fairtex show that i recently was on um they started a five round promotion as well uh but it's not what it used to be and rajadamran uh is keeping a nice kind of balance between the two like they have that rws show that's kind of like a tournament format kind of hard to follow but then they have their regular uh shows as well Mm -hmm. um but yeah, they're, they do it the same way. Kind of what I told you is up to 100 fights, you feel like you're gaining experience. You're fighting anyone. Some of these kids fight, you know, every single weekend. And then they get up to 60 fights and they start kind of traveling around, maybe fighting in Phuket, maybe like a Southern style fighter. Then they fight in Bangkok on like a smaller show or stadium. They fight in Chiang Mai. They travel around. And then once they have around 100 fights, then they go to the big circuit, which is in Bangkok, you know, at like Channel 7 or uh, Rajadamnern. And or now, now it seems there. more like with uh, a lot of the ties, because they're going to get a better payday. It's moving towards one championship. I mean, you got, I think um, uh, Nong O is over there, Superlek, uh, both the, these girls, the, um, Wonder Girl, Supergirl. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's really, that's kind of where they've transitioned to. As yourself, when you're going through, you know, this career path, what do you eye towards? Now, clearly, I understand you're probably not looking towards UFC and MMA, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. Do you have your eyes on one? Is that an option? It's an option. But uh, again, I always look at the whole environment and spectrum of what is happening. And that's at the end. It's like my last year in fighting, last two years in fighting. I want to grab all the organizational titles. Uh, WBC is up right now. Then I'll grab the WMO. Then I'll grab the WMC. And then uh, you go, okay, what's left? One championship is the big one. That's what's left. How old are you now? um, I just turned 30. Oh, so you're kind of, you're like right in that, that. I am. I lost three years of my prime because of COVID, unfortunately. But so did everyone else. So it's like, Yeah. yeah, it's okay to like. It's almost like the whole industry went on hold, so it's not like some others got to take off while you were on pause. But, yeah, 30 is like, I mean, as a fan of, of this sport, like, I mean, you got, you, well, I mean, uh, what's his name? Uh, Liam Harrison was fighting Nong Oh. He blew his knee out the other day, but I think he's making a comeback as well, and he's got to be 36. So that whole age, like, over the next, do you have your roadmap for the next three years, which I would assume is probably get through that and your prime is well everyone has a different prime but usually they're saying like 32 33 is really when you're in your prime 
I'm hitting that uh, maturity when it comes to not just fighting in the ring, but the the mental side of things of how to balance personal life and relationships and business and everything that comes with fighting. It's not just getting inside of the ring. I, I know a ton of guys that are super talented, but their home life is a wreck and they're getting into training. They're not focused or they're getting into the fight and things are just not clicking because their mind is somewhere else. Um, you know, like other things can weigh you down or make you feel like uh, you don't deserve this. Like you're not confident enough. And uh, that's what I feel like I've really learned, especially over these last th three years, I've been able to kind of take this like, uh, third person point of view at my whole career and look at the times where I was really successful, the times I failed and put it all together. I, I could never take that step back to see it from the outside because I was so busy fighting before COVID came. I fought 13 times in 13 months for a guy my size. That's really busy above 77 yeah. kilos, you know? And I, at the time it was like, okay, I'm done with the fight was the next fight. There's no, no really time to like step back, breathe, and just assess, uh, especially objectively, because you have to have your mind clicked into this mode of like, uh, I, I need to win this next fight. So you you will lie to yourself to make yourself feel better. So when you step into to the ring, you can perform at your full potential. You don't have time to break yourself down, tell yourself man, ah, this isn't working really well. Like, what if he catches me with this? Because then usually that's what happens. Uh, you don't have the time to really make those huge changes. Or even reflect back on a fight, which, I mean, you have so many different variables that go into training, not just your diet, but like you said, your relationships. And probably a big part that people undermine is the reflection of your previous mm -hmm. fights. Because you just don't have time to reflect. And it's also emotional, right? Like you finish the fight, you're kind of connected to it emotionally for yeah. a little while because you remember the feelings and everything that happened within it. Maybe you and that other person had exchanged some words and you still feel some personal uh, type of connection to it. But two, three years down the line, I forget half the fights. Uh, but the parts that I remember are the ones that are really objective. So I'm like, oh, when I was competing 77 kilos, man, like I wasn't every 77 kilo fight that I had, I end up seeing that I'm not performing to my potential. Like when I'm looking at the person in there, I don't remember that guy because he's performing at like 50% of what he's capable of. Mm -hmm. Oh, when I'm fighting above 82, where I'm not killing myself to cut the weight and be a shell of myself, why am I getting hit by bigger guys? And it's not having as much of an effect on me as it did at 77. And you need all those fights and a lot of experience to be able to see the patterns and to make those correlations. When you only have a few fights, you can't really make those correlations. And having those three years in COVID, they could step back and assess those things. I was able to see like every time I do this, I perform well. Every time I do this, I don't. Okay, let's cut the fat on this side. And let's double down on this. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've done. And especially like things like, we'll call it the, the situation, whatever. So YouTube doesn't block us, but we'll be okay. Like though that time, that two year gap, did that, it's, it's obviously going to affect your body. Like you're not fine tuned for the weight cuts that are to come. Did that situation at all kind of have to push you up in a weight class because you wouldn't have been cutting for, you know, consistently for so long. So maybe things may have changed physiologically. No, it, it was 
just viewing it objectively because mm. if I viewed it and I saw that uh, I was actually performing better at 77, uh, maybe being the bigger guy, then I would have kept going with that. Is that your ideal weight for you now about cutting to 77? Like no, no, that's Cause where you're, I'm you're, really you're... weakened. This fight is at 190 pounds. It's around like 87 kilos. Your upcoming fight. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's, I saw it's cruiserweight, mm-hmm. but I, it's some different division, different promotions, different names, yeah. different weights. Yeah. I mean, I think they even call your light heavyweight like below cruiser. So it's a bit confusing. Yeah, light heavyweight yeah. is below cruiser. That's at 175 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. And then you go to other sports, it's like 205. Anyway, so it's a bit, from, from the outsider, it's a, it can be a bit confusing. Okay, what does what do they mean by yeah. that? It's not universal across all promotions and sports. Yeah, I think there's a diminishing return to mm. the weight cuts that we do. And in Muay Thai, um, we tend to be able to fight closer to our weight than you see a lot of UFC fighters or MMA guys because I think there's a bigger advantage in the grappling uh, when you're a bigger body. Uh, versus when it is in striking. Um, and, and I think it's just better, one, for brain health, two, for performance. And uh, I've been fighting pretty much at my natural walk-around weight. I'm actually under the weight right now. WBC has us do check-in weight 30 days before. You have to be within 10% of your weight. That's and good. seven days before, you have to be within, I don't know, like 5 or 3% of your weight. And, and they're doing water, water testing as well, like one does? No water testing because... It, it's all over the world. It's really hard to track. Yeah, but you do have to submit like videos of yourself. So technically, yeah, I can cut water to get Anyone down to do that, yeah. whatever that ten percent weight is and things like that. But you're just putting something in place uh, to try to get guys to be closer to uh, their natural weights. Mm-hmm. And I know my opponent is similar to myself. Like we're the same build. He's really tall. He's actually taller than me. And he used to fight at 77 kilos as well. He's getting a bit older. Uh, so we're both like meeting pretty much in the same place. And yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to. Just like not having to think about any other external factors and just going at it at like our natural best. Mm. All right. Well, we're going to to that to that. Is that the one hour mark? Oh, that's oh, we're so good. Okay. Um, I, I would be interested uh, and I'd love to maybe bring you back back on, like especially with guests um, when we go through the journey. Um, that's kind of their story of what brought them here. But certain guests I do like to bring back and then you, you can get more technical and talk. I'd, I'd be very interested to maybe even talk about the history of Muay Thai as well, which do, does that play an important part in your training? Like learning who were, the, what was the golden era? Who were the people before me and what were they doing and how can, you, you know, guys like John Danaher, mm-hmm. like this yeah. guy watches like boxing fights in Europe from the thirties to maybe pick something up. Like yeah. it's very interesting, the history of these sports and, and possibly techniques getting lost in time. And going back and finding that, does that play a role in your development? Oh, it does. Uh, You know, I have a gym inside my house. I do all my airdyne work and all my cardio uh, inside the house, all the additional stuff. And I watch fights the entire time. And I kind of try to study that. And I have my whole career. The thing is, I don't get obsessed with one specific time, like the golden era or anything like that, because uh, I personally also try to look at the current state of the sport like what's happening right now. And I feel like some people are like really obsessed with the traditional aspect or they're really new school. And 
I feel like both sides sometimes get mad at me uh, because I sometimes go towards the like new school aspects. And then the new school guys are like, oh, yeah, that's really awesome. But then when I go back to like the traditional side, they're like, oh, come on, man, that's kind of outdated, you know. But I like to mix both and, and just literally look at what works, what, what the most what has the most success rate, what has had the most success rate. And then like in the current format and environment of the sport, what works the best. And that's usually uh, where I just try to form my own systems around it. And that that's where my content kind of comes from. Yeah, and, and I, I highly suggest anyone check that out on the Instagram. It's it's interesting content because it very it focuses heavily on the technique, and it's it doesn't really necessarily connect to you. It's it's more like this is like as you're not talking to the audiences heavily. You're more mm-hmm. this is the this is the technique. Let's focus on that. This is what we're doing. And I think any up and comer is like looking for that information, it's not so easy to find online. Uh, definitely for Muay Thai techniques. I mean, you have yourself, like, well, the Muay Thai guy and, and Muay Thai technician. And there's another guy I've, I follow in Kosamui, Pascal, the German? Pascal, <laughs> uh, Pascal yeah. Pascal, yeah. yeah th- th- it's out there. So um, I, I highly recommend that people can check that out and, and, and learn technique as well because uh, maybe not everyone can even afford to get a plane ticket to come over here. That's what's beautiful about it, right? Like now you can access this content or be able to see a world champion teaching a certain technique or tactic or how he does things. Um, There is a factor of wanting to train it and and be here where you get four or five hours to rep it out. But if you're intrinsically motivated enough yourself, you can take this information and put it to work by yourself. What what type of stuff do you offer? Like if people I, now I saw you have your link tree in the bio, mm-hmm. and people are they're able to come and and enjoy the the technique. But is there certain packages people can follow? Are there any courses that you're providing as well? Yeah, so I have two formats. One is a membership, which is just kind of a collection of everything that I do. So it's striking seminars, clinics, striking systems. It has. Uh, different workouts, things like that. Uh, also has like privates with legendary trainers that I worked with over the years and me doing those technical breakdowns that I do over one minute, over an hour <laughs> and really t- taking it to like the nitty and gritty. And then I have a completely follow along program that's with six or seven professional fighters that are showing you the techniques. You're getting coaching from the corner. So it's me in your corner like this on the just cheering you on and explaining like the cues, you know, of like how to turn your hip over, how to get a better kick, things like that. And uh, the models are professional fighters. Then there, and there's a mobility section in there as well. A big part of my growth after those injuries, after fighting for the top promotions was that I was getting injured. I had three uh, major injuries in a row, broken hand, facial reconstructive surgery for the nose that happened. And then also I blew out my other knee, uh, the one opposite of the one that I blew out in skateboarding and how I was able to get myself back and actually better than I was before was with a lot of mobility work. And it's really hard to do for most people stretching, you know? Uh, So we figured out a system that supersets everything. So it supersets your training with mobility work. So you're kind of actively doing it as active rest. And then there's like additional uh, recovery regimens and uh, deep stretch work as well. So that's 
called the Complete Striking Program. Yeah, I saw, especially with the mobility side, I mean, I've always struggled with that. Um, it's hard to find the time, but now I'm yeah. training at Bangtao and like, I never, I couldn't even sit on the ground and cross my legs. And just from, oh, their, same. just from their stretching, yeah. like my hips have completely opened up and it's, I've always wanted to get into yoga, but it's, that's the thing. It's like super stacking the, the, these sports. And I it's its I, own I can't, thing, I, right? I like everything. when it's its own yeah. thing, right. that's where it becomes difficult. And it's just the stretching is yeah. uh, itself that you can stack within your training. Even if it's 15 minutes is like over the course of three months, you notice change mm -hmm. immediately. I couldn't even, I couldn't properly put my hands behind my back and lift up and stretch. Now I can almost get it back to my shoulder. And that's just from mobility training and stretching properly. And it definitely, definitely works. And as you get older, I think this is very important. You don't want to be a bodybuilder walking around super stiff as well. And p pain, like you, you get used to certain pains and you think like, okay, this is life. You know, like if, if when I would finish my training sessions, I'd be walking, getting to home, walking up the stairs and my hip flexors would literally ache. My hips would hurt if I sat a certain way. Like you said, I couldn't cross my legs. Yeah. And I thought like, okay, this is life. I injured myself. My hips feel this way. I've tightened myself up, done a hundred kicks. And this is what it feels like. It's supposed to be painful. It's Muay Thai. Uh, and then once you start doing it uh, cons consistently and you feel the differences, you go, oh, wow. Life doesn't have to be so shitty and it doesn't have to be so hard. Yeah, it's... Uh, and just in general like i'm able to sit like this now i couldn't do that three months Pretty sweet. ago there's no way and are you also now you're over at powerhouse that's mm -hmm. down in uh we'll, rawai we'll call that rawai yeah. um are you offering pts private training sessions no, right now i'm completely focused on yeah. fighting being a fighter it's really hard being a to juggle both full-time trainer where you're selfless yeah and then uh, a fighter where a lot of times you're very selfish and i want to offer everything that a coach would and give all of myself to a fighter if I'm bringing up a fighter. So I, I work with a, maybe a specific couple people that I've known for like 10 years, even from uh, going back to the U S mm -hmm. but aside from that, no, uh, just the online work because I'm able to broadcast it to everyone while, and they can digest the content as I'm out there training myself. And you can create that on your own time schedule instead exactly. of training. I mean, Training, you're still, s I don't, the word isn't stuck, but you're, you're constrained to a, a certain time yeah. because, well, other people are, they need to be in the gym as well. Yeah. And I mean, you can't just decide to train Muay Thai for two hours at midnight. Exactly. Um, okay. Uh, we're going to wrap this up in just a second. I'm going to pass, pass this, uh, this camera right here. I'll shoot this camera back to you. And if you can just kind of let everyone know. Um, where they can find you online and if they are looking for any of these um, um, uh, packages that you're offering and these, these, these training sessions, anything along those lines, how they could actually go find it. Sweet. So you can find us at onlinestrikingacademy.com. If you're looking for that complete striking program, it's just onlinestrikingacademy.com slash complete striking. And then uh, my blog, my website is MuayThaiTechnician.com and so are all the social media sites. So Facebook, Muay Thai Technician, Instagram, Muay Thai Technician. Yeah, I'd, probably the easiest way I would assume is go over to Instagram, Muay Thai Technician, link in the bio. Exactly. And then you're going to yeah. find all everything he's offering. Uh, we'll leave all those links in the description as well. Specifically to his Instagram just makes your life easier for everyone. They can yeah. go find that out. Um I think that wraps it up. Oh, I had, oh, sorry. One more quick question. Um, 
now that you're kind of you're 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 in your prime, but like you said, you're you're also you you have those goals, those maybe to capture all these promotion titles and move to one. Is there anyone out there? You know, let's talk to the future. There's that you know dream fight that maybe that fighter that you would love to have a match with. I always did this like this, this last fight. I got the big knockout at Lumbini. I turned to the camera. I go, Elijah, you next because I knew that was the next fight. You know, his tall, his a titan. Just like myself, taller than me, mm-hmm. and he's the champion right now, and that's who I want to take. After that, it's Charlie Bub because he's number one in Australia, mm-hmm. and after that, it'll be whoever is number one in the other organizations. Because once you have one, you want them all, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to collect all the gems on the yeah. gauntlet, you know. And I you can't co- look too too far ahead, anyways, because yeah, who, who so knows what the landscape will be by then. So I know, like. This is the guy that's the best in North America. Then is the guy that's the best in the world, rank number one. And then we'll be looking for the other organizations that see the other guys as rank number one. How, how long on a timeline do you think that would take? A couple years? Like, I think if the momentum keeps rolling like it is right now, like, like it, it's kind of gone from being super quiet, yeah. really hard to find a fight. I had seven training camps that got canceled fights. Uh, that was really frustrating. And now all of a sudden, like everything kind of like clicks on momentum. It's almost like a reminder. Like I had to come out of not fighting for almost three years, kick a guy's head off. And then like, oh yeah, Paul, uh, Paul's back. And then have to kick another guy's head off. And like, okay, he's really back. And we actually got quite a few offers for fights after, uh, right after that. So if we just keep that momentum going, I think it could be done in in the next two, three years. Awesome. Well, we're looking forward to that. Um, we'll keep you guys posted on that. And again, I'd love to have you back uh, maybe in another like four to six months and we can dive a bit more into like the technique and the history and really focus more on the Muay Thai side. Um, okay, uh, that uh, ends another episode. We never know how to finish these. Uh, don't forget, like, subscribe, and we'll leave all that stuff in the description. And we're out.